Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. I'm warming up. That's what I'm doing. I'm warming up. <laughs> okay, the reason I'm sort of talking too soon is um, I'm, I'm going to pull back the curtain here a little bit and sort of let you see the parts of the show that don't happen. It's like jazz. It's the parts that don't happen. That's what you should really be concentrating on. So, like every Friday when we're doing the nose, this is the nose, um, starting Thursday night and then going into Friday, we have like this whole thing like, do there's two, two things enough to talk about? Do we need a third thing? And a lot of times we come up with a third thing and sometimes we don't. And I don't know, it's just like this constant, almost Sisyphean process. And so today I was floating the idea that we could conceivably talk about the fact that Josh Hawley and probably a lot of other Republicans are threatening to strip away Disney's Mickey Mouse copyright just out of pure peak and resentment because they don't like Disney anymore. Um, but that's kind of funny. And I was listening to a, another podcast that I like called The Watch and they were being really funny about it. And I mean, it was of interest to me because as some of you know, we're, <laughs> we have protracted logo problems here and they're not going away anytime soon, our protracted logo problems. But I'm thinking if Mickey Mouse winds up in the public domain, why can't I just have Mickey Mouse as, as my logo? Um, and but then I was also the guys at the watch had me thinking about you know you could start making stuff content about Mickey Mouse, and so then I, I was about walking the dog. I'm all alone on this hillside. The dog's off the leash, and um, and I start doing. <laughs> I start practicing doing Mickey Mouse as Michael Clayton. And specifically, I, I, I guess Mickey Mouse is talking to Josh Hawley. I guess that's who he's talking to. And he's saying, I'm not the guy you kill. I'm the guy you pay. <laughs> and for some reason or other, the dog found me talking in this way to be just the most exciting thing in the world. Like he, he clearly thought maybe I will just begin talking that way all the time. And that will be so much better than the way he's accustomed to hearing me talk. He was capering all over the hillside. And then I just sort of realized what would happen if just right around the bend of the path that we were on was another person, you know, <laughs> listening. It wouldn't be the first time I, I got caught uh, doing something like that. Anyway, we, uh, we're not going to do We're not going to talk about Mickey Mouse today. Or maybe we will. Who knows? I can't predict what these people are going to do. And when I say these people, I mean our panel today, Raquel Benedict, who claims. Hello. hello and it says claims to be. I think we have to get rid of claims to be. <laughs> Raquel Benedict is. Among Raquel Benedict's qualities are such diverse elements as being the most dangerous woman in speculative fiction and being the host of the Right Good podcast, which I insist on telling you is spelled R-I-T-E space G-U-D. 
now, talking about somebody who has diverse elements to her identity, Carolyn Payne is an actress, comedian, dancer, director, founder, director, choreographer of Kinetic Dance, and that still involves, I think, leaving out some cat trainer. Maybe the the, the cat is the, her cat is like in commercials and stuff. Uh, and Bill Usman, he's just only one thing. It's so sad. Bill Usman is a professor of media studies at Sacred Heart University. So all the other things are hidden. Yeah, so they must be hidden. Uh, it's the things we don't know about you. So we're going to begin by talking about the discontinuation of the Apple iPod. Uh, and then we will move from there to a conversation about the staircase, the current version of the staircase, not the old version of the staircase. It's all it's true crime. It's the story uh, of Michael and Kathleen Peterson. She winds up dead in 2001 and unwittingly, I think it's fair to say, spawns a tremendous true crime subgenre, which is just her and whether or not her husband killed her. So anyway, that is to come. Uh, but yeah, let's talk about the Apple iPod being discontinued after 20 years. Uh, and it doesn't. It seems like it must have been longer, but uh, it turns out it was just, yeah, 20 years ago that Apple brings this thing in. And it's this revolutionary freaking thing, you know? You could put a thousand songs on it. Can you believe it? A thousand songs. Um, so... And there's not going to make any more of them. I mean, that's what it comes down to. So I don't know, Bill Usman, uh, being a media studies guy, can you steer us in some kind of analytical analytical direction about this? Probably not. <laughs> um, but I can give you my own take on yes, it. Yes, that's fine. Um, you know, my analytical skills on a Friday morning are well, I guess it's not really even morning. So that just shows you how off I am. Um, I actually love that we're talking about this today and some cranky people might be saying what why are you talking about ipods who i almost did an anna delby voice there by accident mm -hmm. um that's you know so you know 2010 or whatever but to me what this is really about is our relationship to recorded music which has changed so much in just the past few decades um, I am someone who has a very, very deep involvement in recorded music. I might be the person who has the least musical talent. All of that went to my brother in the family. And in ratio to the most intense appreciation and love and, 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 and just as a central part of my life, recorded music. So it starts with me haunting record stores and buying literally thousands of vinyl albums. And then, you know, it becomes CDs and I probably have, you know, close to 10,000 CDs, much to my wife's chagrin. And then here comes this thing, like, as you said, Colin, holy cow, I can carry a thousand songs in my pocket. And that just seems so mind boggling to me. And I embrace that fully. And now that seems so passe because I feel like I almost have access to just an infinite stream of everything that I want to listen to uh, through streaming music and other devices. And so this has been a really major change in how we interact with recorded music, I think very significantly, and that it speaks to some kind of larger elements in our, in our culture of what we have both gained and lost in the digital age. 
Yeah, and I mean, everything, you know, to put on my McLuhan hat, as I usually do, I mean, everything that's new is disruptive, but also contains new possibilities. It's one of the reasons right. I think we need to talk about hardware, more, probably more than we do. So this is hardware, but think about what it did. Well, among other things, uh, it, Steve Metcalf, our musical expert, regards the shuttle function, which I believe was introduced on the iPod. I don't think there was mm-hmm. a shuttle function anywhere else, as one of the really kind of revolutionary, ground-shifting moments in kind of modern recorded music. The idea that you could randomly, once you pre-created this, pre curated, excuse me, this playlist, you know, it, it could it could just play all kinds of things uh, out of sequence. Uh, it could be argued that that also disrupted the notion uh, of an, an album, an intact mm-hmm. album. Uh, but there's like a hundred other things we could talk about in that way. Uh, but let's talk to somebody who actually is not one of, does not own one of the 450 million iPods that somehow or other have found their way into human hands over the last 20 years, and that would be Raquel. You actually managed to avoid uh, iPods entirely. I have never owned one. I did own an incredibly cheap knockoff MP3 player, but I I have not owned (laughs) an iPod. I'm the outlier. I just don't own Apple products. And, and, And do you want to say a little bit more about that, though? I mean, you know, obviously... All you had to do was wait, Um, not by the iPod, not by any of the secondary and tertiary iterations of the iPod. And sooner or later, you would have a phone that does all that stuff anyway. Yeah, I I mean, I'd, I'd love to say I had some brilliant philosophical reasoning behind it, but mainly the big reason is that I'm kind of cheap. <laughs> 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 and that's it. And uh, the knockoff little unfamous, not cool MP3 players were cheaper. And that's sort of what I went through it with. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't have a cooler story than that. Well, I'm going to d- drag a cooler story out of you because <laughs> I think an, an interesting question about this is, is and I, you are a deeply philosophical person. So um, one of the questions I think that the iPod poses is, as opposed to the modern smartphone, which contains your Spotify, contains your, in my case, Tidal, uh, because I worry that the Carter family does not have enough money. Uh, so I, I am, I, mean, I think maybe they even sold it. But anyway, contains whatever streaming service you're using. You know, is it a better world where we have this one thing we carry around that kind of technologically outsources so much of our lives, our mail, our messages, our photos, <laughs> our, our emotions, <laughs> our music, uh, you know, Raquel, everything is in the damn smartphone. There's something kind of almost appealing about the idea that, okay, yeah, my music's over here and this other shiny thing. I mean, it's cool. I love my smartphone. I spend way too much time staring at it. It's extremely convenient. Um, One thing that I will say is that I've noticed there is this overwhelming trend away from owning media to where now you pay access for it, but Mm. you don't own it. Like we used to own DVDs. We used to own records and then cassettes and maybe eight tracks and CDs. And then we at least owned MP3s. We digitally owned something to the extent that you can, but now none of this is on our machine. It's just streamed onto our machine and we pay a subscription fee or we are required to look at ads in order to access it. And that is part of a general trend that I do find slightly concerning because I, I like being able to pay for something and it's mine and now it's not mine anymore. And there have been instances in which media has just sort of disappeared or been altered by the owning company. 
So maybe you've paid ac for access to it, but it's been altered without your agreement, without your consent. Uh, this is this is an example from movies, but Spider-Man, the early 2000s, uh, Sam Raimi Spider-Man did have a bit of a homophobic joke in it that, I mean, it was, it was you know, it was the times. It, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but recently one of the streaming services that has that movie edited the joke out. Just did it, you know, no fanfare, no, no announcement. Just if you watch that movie, the joke is gone. And I mean, one can argue like, hey, it's not like I really want a homophobic joke in a movie that I'm watching or a movie that I'm going to show to a kid. But on the other hand, to me, there is something a little alarming with the idea that a corporation can just sort of take something away or alter something. And now you can't get the original thing. Right. And I, I think that does um, kind of create an odd distancing effect from reality or kind of recent historic reality. It's kind of like, you know, this is a weird analogy, but I, I just know that it will resonate with our producer, Jonathan McPants. You know, earlier this week or whenever it was, and this is also a totally a Billy Usman thing, you know, the, that um, Wordle had as the answer <laughs> one day, feed us. Except yeah. once, they, once they realized that that wasn't cool right now, they changed it. So yeah. some people solved for feed us and somebody else solved for again or whatever the other whatever the new word was so was uh, shine i think it might have been shine who, who but the point is that that's to raquel's point that you know because in fact Wordle doesn't really exist on your phone it doesn't really exist anywhere in your life it's not like you bought a box with a lot of scrabble tiles in it or something like that it just it, it can be its history can be rewritten in real time uh and and then streamed or presented to us differently and i think that is i knew that there was something profound to say about all this uh and and there it is, uh, courtesy of Raquel Benedict. All right, so Carolyn, <laughs> you you must have been as somebody who has to like get a bunch of dancers together in a rehearsal space, uh, and then make them dance to you know music. Um, you must have thought she died and gone to heaven when the iPod came along. Um. Yeah. I mean, so uh, actually, my relationship with my iPod kind of went beyond like professional use. Uh, it became something that I really only used like professionally in a dance studio but originally like i was just obsessed with my ipod uh i i you know loved collecting songs and just kind of like getting into the digital world of music like not having to buy cds because there was all there was like one song you wanted on it and the rest i unlike bill did not embrace the album as a whole generally speaking a lot of times i was you know just ex extracting the one or two songs that i liked and their cd was then just like sitting around collecting dust so for me this was like amazing and um, I also have like super ADD when it comes to listening or watching anything. So the shuffle function was something that was like a gift to me because I could just be listening to like, you know, salsa music one second and then like pop music and then, you know, like a classical piece of music the next. And for me that actually, for most people that would be just chaos, but I love that chaos. So I loved my iPod. And then when I was living in New York, like I lived out in Brooklyn and I had the longest train rides in the world every day. And so if I didn't have my iPod, it was like, you know, I would consider like turning around and going home to get it. It was that kind of thing. Uh, so, you know, then obviously as our phones became something that could do that now, I, I mean, I just listen to music. Like I just, 
I stream music. Like I just do, uh, you know, I, I do like Spotify and stuff. And I just, it's such a different world to me. Like I would never think the only time I ever download music is again, in the professional sense as like when I'm choreographing or rehearsing something and, um, I need that track like on demand. Uh, so my iPod, yeah, it kind of went from being this like prized possession to something that I solely use in a workplace to then, uh, you know, eventually becoming obsolete because then everything was on my phone and it kind of just sat around until it was a brick. And, um, and then I, I cleaned it out cause I, and, and I did feel sad being like, I knew I, something inside me said like, you're never, they're never even going to make these anymore. Uh, and, and it was sad cause it was once such a cherished item, but that's kind of how, that's sort of how technology goes, you know, like that's where we're all at. There are a lot of things that like, we just don't use anymore because of, because of technology and because of the way things are like, I, I mean, like cable TV, you know, we don't really need that. And that used to be something so important. Like I can remember the Disney truck pulling up when I was a kid to like install Disney channel on your cable (laughs) now. Uh, So, I mean, I think it's just, it's just another casualty in the ever changing world, but I will forever RAP the iPod. It really was a big part of my life. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, interestingly, the iPod is dying at precisely the moment that Spotify won't have Neil Young or Joni Mitchell or whoever else got mad and quit over Joe Rogan. So, I mean, and and I do think that our iPods contain things. I have this iPod that is on life support, basically, and it doesn't work at all unless it's plugged into its power source. And of course, the power source is this very bespoke slot, you know, slot and tab arrangement that exists nowhere else in nature or in technology. So I've got to have that. I've got to keep it, you know, but it does have playlists that I can't easily recreate. I don't know. I found this guy writing in the, writing about this in, in The Guardian who, who kind of summed it up pretty well. My iPod contains many songs that streaming does not acknowledge. For Gotten B-sides culled from old CD singles, bootleg mm-hmm. remixes plucked from file-sharing platforms, sundry rarities downloaded from uh, from now-defunct websites, albums snarled up in copyright issues. Uh, it's a unique collection of music curated over many years in which each song represents an active choice. It's mine alone. And um, actually, Raquel, I'm guessing that whatever the hell kind of uh, Acme Lappy uh, uh, <laughs> thing, thing that you have, that's probably really like that, right? It must have been just full of all kinds of stuff that you got, however. I, I had so many Tori Amos remixes downloaded from <laughs> Audio Galaxy back when that still existed a million years ago in the 90s. It, yeah, yeah, there was this really cool side of it, which if there was a lot of stuff that you could own that, maybe you weren't 100% supposed to own. It was it was a lot more decentralized and it gave corporations not quite as much control over the flow of information, over the flow of entertainment, but with everything much more centralized on Spotify. Like if Spotify doesn't have something or if Spotify decides we're not going to show this, then that's that's, you don't get it. Right. You and, can't listen to it. And uh, yeah, definitely the FBI knows, you know, how often I listen to the Uncle Devil show or whatever. So, um, so that's not great either. So, so yeah. Um, and 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 Bill, I guess we should say the obvious, which is that at some point, 
Urban Outfitters will start selling something that looks an awful lot like it'll either be an iPod that they <laughs> made somehow. So, but I mean, if turntables came back, uh, Urban Outfitters and and you know other kinds of hipsters are going to come in there with their jazz hats and 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 pick up the latest sort of retro fake iPod. Yeah. You know, part of what we're talking about, and I think all of us are talking about it in in, in slightly different ways, but it, it there's some overlap there, is nostalgia. I mean, at least for me, I feel that really well. You know, one of the things that I miss about haunting, you know, record stores is, yeah, I miss you know, the, the enjoyment of that, the, the holding the physical object in your hand, the, the, the ineffable qualities of that discovering something that you didn't know existed. And suddenly I, you know, I had no idea that there was this collaboration between Carlos Santana and John McLaughlin, but there it is. And I can grab it and I can bring it up to the counter and I can purchase it and I can bring it home. There was all that, but I think it's also, you know, my nostalgia for being in my 20s and what that time was like and and what I've lost since then. And I think that's part of, you know, what we're all experiencing in this age of, you know, if I were to do the analytical thing that you asked me to do earlier, Colin, media convergence, where, you know, it's all coming together, what used to be discrete into you know just this one object now which is almost magical in its capabilities and that it's so portable but we've also lost these discrete experiences you know and we've lost that you know Raquel was kind of alluding to this that maybe you know this is this is mine um, now it belongs to everyone and everyone, as you say, Colin, can see what I'm doing. Nobody before would have known, you know, what CDs I own, but now when I stream, it's just all out there. And so there is this, this sense of, of loss, even as we're encountering the grandeur and the splendor of, of what is now capable for us to achieve. And I think that's a lot of what's behind, you know, the return of what previously were the four forms of dominant media, but will still keep, you know, having an afterlife. Wow, you went kind of Ozymandias on there at the end there. Uh, but yes, absolutely. <laughs> I had no idea that Colin McEnroe and Myron Usman wrote two songs together in 1972, which is actually... Oh, I actually didn't know that. That's, I think I think actually your brother and I did write a couple of songs together. So, I love um, those. No, I'm going to go try to stream those. No, right you now. don't. Uh, just very ser- quickly, uh, Bill Flood, super listener Bill Flood points out that, yes, you could actually do shuffles on like those five CD things, but you couldn't shuffle a thousand songs. But those five CD trays... That would do shuffles. Mm-hmm. Absolutely true. Um, I also wanted to point out rather poignantly that a w- woman I know uh, is on Facebook saying that she has a daughter with severe autism for whom iPods, an adult daughter w- with severe autism, for whom iPods are sort of like this really important uh, thing as both object and storage for a certain kind of uh, song, songs often from mm-hmm. her childhood that she listens to. She also tends to break things a lot. So 
they currently own five of them, and she was in the market probably for anybody else's iPod now that there aren't going to be new ones. I mean, you sort of never know how people are going to relate to hardware. I, I think that we can say with some certainty. All right. So a wonderful conversation about iPods. Thanks to all of you. Then we're going to get started on the staircase on the other side of this. We're going to go out with a song that became famous partly in iPod commercials. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. We're back. The Staircase is an HBO buffering, 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 buffering Max original miniseries created by, that's an HBO joke, by Antonio Campos uh, based on the 2004 French docuseries that is available on Netflix. You can do it all uh, all together or, or you, can, you, can, you can shuffle. You can shuffle play The Staircase between the one that is acted by the likes of Tony Collette uh, and uh, Colin Firth. Uh, against you can shuffle it with the docu-series where you actually see the real people, although you actually do not see Kathleen Peterson. Um, so um, it's on HBO Max. Yes, uh, it has some terrific stars in it. Uh, it is the story of a murder which occurred in North Carolina in 2001 or an accident, a deadly lethal accident that occurred in uh, North Carolina in 2001, depending on where you sit. So, Carolyn, get us going on this. I, I I believe you have been doing what I just described, which is kind of shuffling between uh, the original French documentary and the acted dramatization. Uh, well, sort of. So I watched the documentary when it like dropped on Netflix a couple years back, and then and, and I I love this documentary. Like, I think if you are a true crime fan, this is in a lot of ways like the definitive one to this whole genre. It was an early one. It's just so fascinating. Every every piece of it is is really is really cool. Like it's really well done. And uh, so I was so excited about this HBO series that I decided to invest the time to just rewatch the whole documentary series, which is a big time commitment because it's like 13 episodes and they're each about 45 minutes long. So, uh, you know, I, I just decided that my whole weekend was going to be that uh, to prepare for this so that I could really go in deep. Um, 
So I am now, I, I feel like I am now just a full expert on the Michael Peterson case. Uh, and I think actually I do recommend if you haven't watched the documentary or if you watched it in 2018, I recommend going back and maybe, you know, you don't have to be like me and go through the whole thing, but it, you really feel like you have to once you get into it. Um, but I think that it just, it sets up this HBO documentary so well. Uh, I, I, and I think it gives you such a respect for like the way that these actors are portraying these characters. Um, obviously all the talk is about, um, Colin Firth and doing this Michael Peterson voice that he really captures. And yeah, that's stellar. But for me, the win was getting Parker Posey as the ADA mm. Freda. Um, when I watched that series, I had like this dream that, uh, that Christopher Guest would turn this into a mockumentary and uh, that Parker Posey, I was like, and this is a perfect casting for Parker Posey and HBO gifted us that. So while this is in no way a mockumentary or a comedy, Parker Posey like can't help herself. Her line delivery is just always spot on hilarious. And she really takes that character uh, and and the, the, that ADA woman, Freda, in the documentary, her facial expressions are just hilarious often. Uh, she's just super over animated as a person and Parker Posey is perfect. So I do recommend that you kind of get when you go back and forth between the two or, you know, just watch them sort of back to back. You do get an appreciation for the details and for making the documentary a character in itself in the show. Yes, and which has also become over the last 20 years kind of a thing. To me, you know, Raquel, years and years and years ago, roughly around the same time that Bill Usman's brother and I were writing really bad Jackson Brown knockoff songs, um, <laughs> there was something called The American Family. And it was a documentary in which this family, uh, oddly enough named The Loud Family, uh, had permitted uh, cameras to come in and documentarians to film every aspect of their lives, total unfettered access. And it just turned out that the unbeknownst to anybody, the husband and wife were about to go through a divorce. One of the children, uh, one of the adult children, Lance Loud, was about to come out as gay back when that was like a really big deal. Uh, and, and a whole bunch of stuff happened. It was this riveting thing. And there's a way in which, to me, The Staircase combines a lot of the familiar elements of true crime with that familial component. I mean, to me, Raquel, this is the thing that maybe make, distinguishes it from other stuff is you're also watching this family in the process of entering new levels of dysfunction, which per, just by chance or by by the, you know, the cooperation of Michael Peterson himself, this French documentary film crew is covering all kinds of stuff that is only tangentially connected to the crime and, and theories of the case, but also about like whose side are you on? Right, right. I mean, it's a huge family. It's really messy. As I'm what, as I was watching the documentary and as I'm watching this new series, every couple of minutes, I need to stop and remind myself, like, wait, whose daughter is she? Yes. Because there, there's like three moms and two or three husbands or dads involved in in that made this enormous clan come together, and it's so messy and bewildering. And and I lo love that this new series really took that tone and went with it. It's. I think it's letting us sort of be confused and letting things be messy and letting it be in terms of there's there's twists and there's sort of, I don't know, not exactly alternate timelines, but reveals and how 
I mean, as part of suggesting, well, maybe the truth can't be unknowable of, well, maybe this family can't really be that knowable to us. Like, I, I, I appreciate that it is acknowledging that we're only getting this one one side of them. And I mean, even if you have a documentary crew has unfettered access to your house, if there's a camera in your face, you're going to act different. Oh yeah. You're just, you're, you're going to, you do not act natural when there is a camera trained on you, especially when your dad's on trial for murder or something. And um, it is kind of fun and, and it, well, fun is a terrible word to describe this sequence of events, but I appreciate the choice that the uh, series is making here in that it is letting it be messy and right. letting it be a bit confusing. Yes. Although you kind of, I agree that, you know, I, I'm surprised to hear myself saying this, but you kind of want those kind of Adam McKay, you know, freeze frames where like some CG goes up there and goes, this is Margaret and Martha and they're related. To, you know. Yeah, like get a chart or something. Yeah, they're, they're, you really do need a scorecard or something uh, because it gets complicated and people have kind of similar names and uh, people go off the reservation and stuff. You know, Bill, there's a lot to say about this, obviously, but one thing. I, my sense was that you had a reaction similar to mine, which is that episode four, which is the most recent episode available, they're dropping it now. They're going to drop it week by week on, on HBO. Um, you didn't kind of introduce something that isn't in the original French documentary because it couldn't possibly have been because mm -hmm. a, a character played by Juliette Binoche uh, is one of the people who's involved in somehow or other editing or producing the documentary. And she apparently, and we're, we're just learning a little bit more about this, and I've avoided doing any outside reading that would tell me more about this, but she, while watching the, you know, the, the, just the demise uh, of Michael Peterson, seems to, as she's in the editing suites, be falling in love with him and also taking up his cause. Uh, and, and, and they're starting to use her in the fourth episode as a different kind of storyteller bracketing device, which I, to me, the fourth episode is when this thing kind of the lights really turned on for me uh, in this episode we just saw. Yeah, I agree with that. I think the fourth episode is terrific. And there are there. Are, so, so while I was watching it, um, my I watched the documentary quite a while ago. I can't even remember when. And my memories of it are, you know, not that acute. But one of the things I remember thinking that I do remember about watching the documentary is it seemed to very deliberately swing us back and forth each episode to feeling like he was guilty and then feeling like, no, he's not guilty. And that seemed to be very deliberate in that way. And so in 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 this series, there are some elements creeping in early about mm -hmm. reflecting on the documentary process of, of, of all of that. But my initial thinking was, oh, that's really interesting. I wish they would go further with that. And then they do. Then they do in this episode. And I'm really looking forward now to seeing what more they do in subsequent episodes with that. Because I think what it allows this to do is is take it to a next level where yes it's 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 this mystery this true you know crime mystery about what really happened here but it's also i think in some ways very much a narrative about narrative i think we could we could 
argue or I could argue that the whole this whole series, the HBO version is about storytelling itself. And by bringing Sophie in, this becomes really explicit in the interviews that they do with her and, and some of the things that she says. And then the other thing that they do about that, they, they do with that is by actually showing the presence of the documentary filmmakers so much and their, their, their mo questioning their motives and their ethics and showing the editing process. They then, I think, create a really interesting juxtaposition with the justice process and, you know, really almost saying quite explicitly that a trial is also a constructive narrative. So both criminal trials and documentary film have a relationship to truth, but not an uncomplicated relationship to truth. And that's just really interesting to me. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I earlier this week, I interviewed the crime novelist Don Winslow. And in his new book, City on Fire, there's these two mobsters having a conversation. The leader of the mob says, ask, the, ask one of his underlings, what is history? And the guy goes, I don't know. It's history's like, what happened? He goes, no, history is what they say happened. And, right. and, and Sophie, if that's her name, Juliette Binoche, uh, makes this point in kind of a prologue to the fourth episode. She basically says, well, similar to what you just said, Bill, which is that what is a trial? Well, it's two stories, one of which is going to be picked uh, to be the truth. Uh, and, and, you know, it, that when you look at it that way, it, it does sort of put storytelling in an interesting and kind of kind of. Hegelian light or something. Well, before we say any more, and we're going to run out of time anyway, we'd like you to hear a little bit uh, from this. So here, to Carolyn's point, is Colin, Colin Firth with his uh, uncanny uh, Michael Peterson voice uh, and Michael Stolberg, the great character actor, uh, as David Rudolph, uh, who is the longtime, very faithful criminal trial attorney associated with Michael Peterson. I just found her there. Oh, she, she was breathing... And then she wasn't. How long between when she left you to when you found her? I don't know. It couldn't be more than half an hour. You didn't hear her scream, call your name? Or... I, I didn't hear a goddamn thing. Look, God willing, you won't need any help. But sometimes good people get dragged into situations that turn out bad okay so how much is it going to cost <clears throat> in a case like this you're going to need jury consultants blood analysts between four and five hundred k half a million bucks i got five kids to worry about now so the three still in college Good defense isn't cheap i shouldn't need a defense i shouldn't even be here so there's that uh, that voice again. And Carolyn, uh, I read somewhere as we were getting ready for this that orig they originally had attached to this project, not Colin Firth, but Harrison Ford, um, who probably would have been talking to his lawyer and saying, don't tell me the odds. Never tell me the odds. Um, or get off my staircase. But um, but he had to go off and voice, you know, an Indiana Jones pinball game or something. But I, I do want to come back to the acting here because it is interesting and it's you know, Carolyn, I think especially interesting because we have such easy access to the templates. Uh, and I, I, you know, I know that Michael Stolberg is one of the most revered character actors working today. But as I said to Jonathan McPants yesterday, I think my favorite 
Dave Rudolph is Dave Rudolph. There's like some people are really good at being themselves, you know, really good at being themselves on camera. And there's a way it's, in which it's kind of hard to outact them. Uh, and so, yeah, I, mean, I agree with you about Parker Posey. She's uh, amazing and manages to get a little Parker Posey slyness in there here and there, but being faithful to the character. Colin, she says the the whole cast freaked out when Colin first started talking in his uh, his uh, uh, Michael Peterson voice. But uh, I don't know some of the other things that we have. Sophie Turner from Game of Thrones is one of the daughters. I mean, there's some interesting casting choices here. Uh, maybe you'd like to say a little bit more about them, Carolyn. Well, I, I mean, I think also we need to talk about Tony Collette, who yes. I really revere as I think she's one of the greatest actresses out there working to be honest with you. And I feel like she kind of tends to go under the radar. And uh, she she really, I mean, she's done a lot recently, I think more where she's getting more talk, I mean, like in Hereditary and everything. And I think as terrifying as Hereditary was, well, it wasn't terrifying, but it was, you know, it was chilling. I think Toni Collette, her scene where she recreates her, uh, the the death on the staircase of what, how it could have looked had it been an accident. I actually like couldn't sleep at night after watching that. I, that was a very, I was shocked at how jarring that imagery was. Um, and Tony Collette is in, in general, like she's really bringing, cause in the documentary, everything is set up. We have all these characters and I a hundred percent agree that David Rudolph is the best David Rudolph. I wish they would have just gotten him to play himself. <laughs> um, but Tony Collette, uh, you know, we don't have Kathleen in the documentary. We have photos and, you know, descriptions and everything. So Tony Collette kind of has the hardest and easiest job here in this show because she's getting to create this character that is this big piece of the puzzle and uh, how she relates to the other characters and everything. And I think she's doing a wonderful job uh, doing that and um, is as fascinating as always. I think she's her her face is just always fascinating and what she brings to characters is always really love like there's just a lot of layers to what she does. Um and I think she and Colin Firth are working really well together. Um but yeah, I I can't say that anyone in this show is not really delivering as their character. Um and in fact, like sometimes it is really easy. Like for me, I almost forget that they're the actor. I've sort of blended them with the human, the actual human, uh, which I don't know if it is a good thing or a bad thing, but uh, especially for like the, the children. Like I, I just learned apparently it's Patrick Schwarzenegger is playing one of the sons. Yes. Who I couldn't tell apart in the documentary. And I certainly can't tell apart in this series. I have no idea which one is Todd and whichever, which one is. Patrick Schwarzenegger is playing the less dissipated son. The- <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. So they, um, you know, they're, it, it, it's, it's interesting how they have all taken these real characters that you got to know very well. And I call them characters because I really feel like in this documentary, those are characters um, and what they've done with them. But I, I think for me, uh, Colin Firth, Tony Collette and, uh, and Parker Posey just for being you know, just for really bringing my dream to reality. I think they're just real, the real standouts. All right. So it's, we don't have more. There's so much more that we'd like to say. 
I mean, this is sort of the way we true crime now, you know? I mean, I just don't know how much longer the format where, you know, somebody who sounds like Robert Stack, the body was found, you know, I mean, and then it's like 20 minutes and they're done. Um, you know, I, I think we're expecting this, these kind of context-rich presentations these days. Uh, and uh, and this is, you know, maybe the, the driving force behind them starting in 2004. All right, let's take a break. Let's come back with our panel after this. You always heard the one you love, the one you shouldn't hurt at all. You always take the sweetest road. All right, we are back. Time to thank Cat Pastor. She's our technical producer in there making all this stuff work so well. Uh, Jonathan McPants is always is pretty much uh, the producer of The Nose, and he is today. Uh, so our panel is still here. They are going to make some recommendations to us. Uh, Bill Usman, why don't you start the parade? Okay. I want to mention uh, two uh, television series, and they're both very, very different in style and tone. The first one is called Life and Beth. It's uh, the new Amy Schumer thing. She plays a woman who is a wine wholesaler uh, who at the start of the, the series is in a terrible relationship and she's just lost her mother. And it's kind of like her journey to this next phase in her life. The people she meets are weird. It's darkly funny, but it's also like really poignant and soulful. Uh, so that's life and Beth. And then the other one is sort of a different face of true crime because it was based on a nonfiction book. We own this city is the new mini series from David Simon. And it's, you know, it's like pretty much if it's David Simon, I'm going to watch it. It's David Simon doing David Simon things. And it's about the corruption, the deep, deep criminal corruption of the Baltimore Police Department. So that's uh, We Own This City. Yeah, and we're going to do that for the nose next week as one of our topics. I would point out, uh, just so we don't get email, George Pelicanos has really kind of taken the lead. He's David Simon's partner on The Wire and stuff like that. But according to Simon, they kind of switched places, and Pelicanos is the lead dog on uh, on this mm. project. So um, Raquel Benedict, uh, why don't you go next? Well, I am going to recommend on the true crime side a slightly older podcast. It's a few years old, but it's called In the Dark, and it's oh. part of this. It's it's extremely good. Uh, it's hosted by Madeline Baran, and it is it is a true crime podcast that tries to counter the traditional story of hero cops versus dastardly supervillain. It, it The first season focuses on the abduction in the 80s of J Jacob Wetterling. It was this really important crime that like changed people's perception of safety in childhood. And the official narrative is, oh, we have these hero cops trying to, trying to find out what happened. And the reality is that there was an ex astonishing amount of corruption and incompetence in that investigation, just a shocking, shocking, shocking amount. So that is what I would recommend for true crime. It's extremely good. Yes. I mean, season two, which is about the Curtis Flowers case, which yes. actually drove that case to the U.S. Supreme Court. That case wound up before the U.S. Supreme Court because of this podcast. And when you're listening to that and hearing the miscarriages of justice going on in Mississippi, 
I mean, you're, you're like throwing stuff. You're throwing big hunks of furniture around the room. You get so mad. Uh, it's brilliant. It, it was brilliant and it's enraging. Uh, but yeah, it just absolutely is terrific. So, uh, Carolyn Payne, what have you got for us? All right. Well, as usual, it's my duty to let you know about the garbage TV that's out there. Um, the Circle is back on Netflix and you... It, it is a really, I find it a really fascinating reality show. Um, it was sort of, it came out before we even ever went into quarantine. And it is a show that kind of puts people into quarantine before it was cool. And now it continues to do so. And you have the Spice Girls. You have two of the Spice Girls on it this season. So um, that's really fun. Uh, so I recommend that. And also, if you're uh, like me and just constantly on a true crime binge and love a good drama remake of a true crime story, um, Candy on Hulu with Jessica Beale and Melanie Linsky, uh, who is terrific. Um, that is a really fun and interesting watch, too. Oh, I'm going to check that one out. All right. So um, I'm going to mention a couple of podcasts as well, or a podcast and a podcast episode. The podcast is called Will Be Wild. Uh, it's on Wondery, which means if you're not a subscriber, you have to wait week by week. I think there's three or four episodes out right now. It is the it is some of the stories behind January 6th, which you might feel a little overcovered to you. No, no. This is amazing storytelling. It's the kind of storytelling that occurred in, in 912, Dan, Dan Taberski's 911 uh, podcast series. It's kind of at almost at that level. It's really, really good. Uh, and I mean, I'm just waiting every Monday for one of them to drop. And then I will just mention, I go back and forth on Kara Swisher. I go back and forth on her podcast, The Sway. But the current one, which is called From Twitter to TV, Are We in a Media Reckoning? Uh, and features Matt Baloney, who's the founding partner at Puck News, and Ben Smith, former New York Times media reporter, who's also co-founding a media startup called Semaphore. But they just sort of go through a lot of the stuff that we talk about on the nose. But they're uh, way, way closer to the industry. So uh, all the stuff that we talk about in terms of the streaming services and the stream apocalypse and what's going to go on and why did CNN cancel CNN and CNN Plus and what's going to happen. To C- I mean, they just go through everything. And I don't know how accurate or right or predictive they are. Uh, but they certainly get you thinking and they give you a whole bunch of, of knowledge that you didn't have. So that's the, the podcast is called The Sway. It's owned by The New York Times. Kara Swisher's the host. But you want this one from Twitter to TV, Are We in a Media Reckoning? And then I have sort of partial endorsements, partial because I'm not, I haven't fully consumed these things. Carolyn, are you aware of a, a series called Girls 5 Eva? Have you, have you watched that by any chance? You're like the second person this week to tell me to watch that. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of on in my house and I'm walking through the room and every time I'm walking through the room, I stop and I laugh at it. It's like it's it's got a it's a Tina Fey Robert Carlack thing at least they're like in the background pr- producing anyway. And it's got a little bit of that style there. It's very funny. And then um really quickly, Raquel, have you started the new uh, Emily St. John Mandel uh Sea of Tranquility? No, I haven't. It's I, I'm about 150 pages into it or something. It's not a very long book. It is mesmerizing. Uh, mm-hmm. And she actually does some really interesting things with uh, the simulated reality hypothesis and, and time travel and stuff like that. And But it, in her usual very spare hypnotic writing style, it's really good. All right. Thanks to this wonderful panel, Bill Usman, uh, Raquel Benedict, and Carolyn Payne. Thanks to you for listening. Said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah